In order to support our show, we'll need the help of some great advertisers. And in order to find some great advertisers, we'll need to know a little bit more about you. So please go to podsurvey.com slash pressbox and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. That way we can show advertisers just how great our listeners are. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can choose to enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash pressbox, P-R-E-S-S-B-O-X. Thanks again for your help. David, at Sunday's Oscars, Samuel L. Jackson updated Spike Lee on the Knicks score before handing out one of the awards for best screenwriting. What I want to know is if Jackson were speaking directly to you, what would you want him to update you on? Oh, man. Well, thankfully, there were no wrestling pay-per-views on last night. Yeah. Um, Do we have to pick from the ESPN bottom line? It's one of those soccer transactions you and I don't understand. The best one would have been if he just told me what happened at the end of uh, at the end of True Detective season three. Yeah, um, I think that would have that would have saved me an hour. Although I mean, it was it was a, it was a, it was a great episode. But um, but yeah, they they solved that who done it, I guess. And 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 the real the real mystery was in the uh, was 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 separate from the from the crime, as one might expect. When there was somebody at the Oscars who knew the result, they could just go ask. Who, what 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 twists are we in store for tonight? <laughs> we are the push notification of media podcasts. This is the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The press box is the media podcast where you're always allowed to dunk on Tucker Carlson. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of the Ringer here again yeah. with three topics for your pleasure and amusement. First, a final word on the Oscars. And Best Picture winner, Green Book. What were the best media subplots from Sunday night? Second, CNN has hired a Jeff Sessions flack to help guide its 2020 election coverage. Should politicos be able to take the TSA pre-check lane straight into journalism? And finally, a brief word on Zion Williamson, the Duke basketball star who hurt his knee and launched a thousand think pieces. Did anything really change with the NCAA and amateurism? Plus the weekly notebook dump and, of course, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with the Oscars. Three hours into a surprisingly crisp Academy Awards ceremony, Julia Roberts came to the podium and gave everyone the bad news. And the Oscar goes to Green Book. Ah! <laughs> it's like a horror movie in there. It's like Jordan a Jordan Peele movie. Oh my gosh! A little bit over the top that reaction, but yeah, I, I mean, it's it's. Uh, do you think everyone had just convinced themselves it wasn't going to happen? Like, I think so. We can get into that. I think yeah. I think that was kind of a kind of a yell of shock. My um my operating theory of this is this: the Green Book win is sort of like what Van Jones of CNN famously called the White Lash after Trump's 2016 victory. Mm-hmm. That is a segment of America that was not on board with the future being more diverse, with the future moving us forward, et cetera, et cetera, and said, I'm out, right? The funny thing is this, the Academy is a group of seemingly liberal to liberalish people mostly, right? Who, mm-hmm. these are people essentially saying, I'm woke, right? I'm with the future. I just don't want to be told how to do it, Right. I, I, I want to be told that, you know, if I'm going to make a movie that's about race in America, I want to be able to make it a certain way. 
I don't want to be I don't want to be told I have to make it in a certain way. This is Brooks Barnes of the New York Times quoting one of those ubiquitous anonymous Academy voters said one voter, a studio executive in his 50s, admitted that his support for Green Book was rooted in rage. He said he was tired of being told what movies to like and not like. What do you, David, ascribe the Green Book win to? Yeah, I don't know if it's I don't know if I would say woke because to me that conveys I mean, I know what you were trying to say, but that conveys a certain like uh, of the momentness, you know, like a, like a, a, a kind of currency on that on that whatever the scale of liberalism we're working off of here. I think that the 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 sort of old guard proud to be a liberal uh, voters um, were are not necessarily. Um, interested in the sort of liberal activist brand of liberal activism that that was sort of steering the conversation and i think that's sort of what you're seeing the reaction to right i mean it is i think that the the van jones uh, uh, correlation was was dead on i mean it, and because it does leave this open question just like with trump's election as to whether or not this is sort of a last gasp of a uh, diminishing, you know, bygone generation, or is this a silent majority um, that is, you know, found a calling? Uh, I, I think it's, you know, it is particularly, you know, a, 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 a very interesting question, interesting argument um, coming on the heels of, you know, the, the Academy diversifying its voting body recently. Yep. Uh, in, in recent years. Um, but yeah, and but I think it's not. I mean, you you wouldn't assume that it's the diversification of of the academy that's really got under anybody's skin, but just sort of the rankling against the feeling that they that people were telling them what to do, and that gets back to what you were saying. And I think that you know, the to to see the conversation. I mean, I have to project here, but 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 to but to you know have a, the this you know touted honor of being an academy voter, but to see the conversation about who you should or shouldn't vote for being steered completely separately from your outside of your control, um, yeah, I can I can imagine one wanting to react to that. Yeah, it's sort of I guess let's set woke aside. It's more like uh, Stephen Root and Get Out, you know, where he says he would have voted for Obama three times if he'd exactly. been allowed to, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. the academy voter, right? That's the mm-hmm. that's the median voter here. I'm amazed, and whether this is a credit to marketing or, you know, however they did it, but Green Book survived a whole lot of really damaging journalism in the last couple months. Uh, I refer you to the piece in the cut about how director Peter Farrelly used to expose himself to people, including Cameron Diaz, as a kind of joke. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not so funny anymore. Um, Don Shirley uh, who is, of course, the subject of the film, his family members coming forward uh, and criticizing the movie on various grounds. Um, you had one of the, uh, was it a screenwriter who had apologized for an anti-Muslim tweet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you had the, um, you know, this, uh, in fact, what came out last night after the movie won was producer Charles Wesler, who was that guy at the very end of the ceremony who was throwing in that random shout out to Carrie Fisher. Mm-hmm. Um, he was sending chiding or angry emails to various critics about their anti-Green Book pieces, including our old friend Austin Collins. Like, what? (laughs) And yet it survived all those things, right? Yeah. I mean, we're hearing about the 10-year anniversary of Saving Private Ryan, uh, you know, getting felled by the smear campaign that only the first 20 minutes were good. But look how many (laughs) devastating stories there were about Green Book, and it still won. 
Yeah, I mean, I just don't think much of that had, you know, I mean, it had much of an effect. I don't even think it was the 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 backlash. I just don't, I don't know how much of, uh, I mean, listen, this is a voting body that gets DVDs delivered to their homes, you know? I mean, it's not, it's not going out into the world and, and experiencing, uh, experiencing these films with, you know, the broader culture is not uh, what they're known for. Um, I also, I mean, speaking of the broader culture, I mean, it, this has always been, I mean, the, the the search for best picture is, you know, kind of goes hand in hand with a sort of search for monoculture. And, um, you know, I think with the exception of Black Panther, which has its own set of, you know, detractors in the Academy, I'm sure, there's nothing else on the list that really, I mean, it's not like there's a specific movie that got screwed on Sunday night, right? I mean, there's no, no one's, I mean, people had their, pre- had their, had their personal preferences. It's not um, like an overwhelming favorite. Right. It wasn't like this was just, it, there was no Hillary Clinton of the 2019 Oscar ceremony. You know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, so Roma was not Hillary Clinton in this. <laughs> no, I don't think Roma was Hillary Clinton. <laughs> did you, by the way, as you surf media Twitter last night, did you feel there were like two hurricanes on a collision course? One was, we want all the deserving movies and actors to win the awards. And the other mm-hmm. one was, we are secretly hoping that the deserving movies and actors get screwed so that we have something to write about. Cause oh, it's yeah. actually more fun as a journalist to be mad at the Academy. Mm-hmm. And if the Academy is and the Oscars are constantly failing either to give the right awards to people or to make a good show, you actually have much more stuff to write about in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel being mad at the Oscars is just kind of now just a take that has floated like three generations of entertainment writers. You'll never, you'll never go broke being mad at the Oscars or being dissatisfied with the Oscars. And yeah, I, and I feel that's like as much as you want Roma to get that best picture, and and I certainly like I'm not, no, I do not want Green Book to win awards or or uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and all that stuff. But like as much as you don't want that to happen, that's what that's what drives interest, right? Is that the Academy will actually get this stuff wrong? Well, and maybe that's part of why the various issues with Green Book didn't actually stick because there was a lot of space, a lot of headspace and airspace and everything else being airtime being given to the complaints about the Oscars broadcast itself, you know, whether it was the host or which awards were going to be on the on the main broadcast and which weren't. I mean, there was so much so much time and energy was spent um, trying to, you know, dunk on the Academy mm-hmm. leading up to the Oscars that it didn't, it may, maybe it didn't leave enough room for like an actual discourse about what films we were judging. A couple of my favorite media rituals of Oscar time. One is, as I referred to a minute ago, the anonymous, honest Oscar ballot. Yes. Amazing. Where the entertainment writer uh, says, okay, just tell me what you actually think about the awards and I'll protect your identity. This is like entertainment, entertainment journalism's answer to the Trump safari. Where he just kind of like, oh, look at that. He doesn't like Roma because it's too long. Um, yeah. But what's funny to me is you do read these things. There was one in The Hollywood Reporter, another one in The New York Times that I read. And you really do get a sense of how people actually vote. Uh, right. Here's some quotes. This is from The Hollywood Reporter about Roma. To me, it's a very slow and rather indulgent film, the most expensive home movie ever made. I've spoken to several of my peers who watched it at home and they were out after 20 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. Another one uh, says, there's a general feeling that some people have it all, talking about actors, and you don't want to give them more. 
And that is going to affect Bradley Cooper for a long time, just like it affected Leo DiCaprio. So essentially the person is saying, just because Bradley Cooper is a movie star, we will not give him, be giving him any more uh, awards. That's <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's another one. I thought uh, that they wanted to give away. I thought they, the point was to award movie stars. Maybe that's more <laughs> of a Golden Globes phenomenon. This is from the New York Times. Uh, one vinegary old voter compared superhero films to, quote, the stuff that oozes out of dumpsters behind fast food restaurants, close quote. <laughs> then he confessed that he hadn't yet seen Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your vote. You vinegary old voter, you. Um, the other thing I thought was fascinating as a sort of media subplot is, and this was in a Hollywood Reporter piece about the way A Star is Born sort of faded. Yeah. You might remember the high point of A Star is Born. <laughs> if you're a fan of The Ringer, you certainly do, right? And then by the time award season came around, it wasn't actually winning awards. Uh, the writer of this piece, Scott Feinberger, says on September 27th, the New York Times ran a long piece titled Bradley Cooper is not really into this profile, which left the distinct impression that the amiable hunk uh, dot, 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 during the course of transitioning to prestige projects had begun to take himself too seriously. Mm -hmm. So in this telling, Bradley Cooper was undone by a celebrity profile. Well, I don't know that he was undone by a celebrity profile, although I'm sure that, you know, that, that's, that, that feels like the sort of thing that a lot of Academy voters would have read. But there was a sort of feeling that, he, you know, pervasive feeling that the, that the people behind A Star is Born weren't playing the game. And you can obviously listen to our, our boss, Sean Fennessy's yes. podcast, The Big Picture, to get a lot more and read his many pieces on TheRinger.com to get a better idea of this. But that Especially in the Golden Globes, uh, I mean, during the Golden Globes lead up, um, you know, that's a much smaller voting body. And, uh, you know, people, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, there, there are certain tried and true tactics to, to getting your film the, the awards exposure that, that you want it to have. And, and, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody famously, um, you know, went all in this year and just, you know, was just having lunches and, and get togethers and receptions and everything just to kind of court that that voting block. And then, you right. know, this it, it kind of that that carries on to the Oscars. If you're perceived to not really care about playing the game, I'm sure that does have some effect. And then, of course, after that, there was a sort of just a laughable media campaign where where Cooper and Lady Gaga were out there, you know, trying. It was almost like a celebrity couple insisting that they're not about to get divorced when everybody knows they are or something. I mean, there was just this, like <laughs> they were just trotting them out in front of everywhere to try to, to put on this weird show and try to make up for lost time. And, 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 you know, in a sort of weird sort of inverted parallel of the whole Oscars hosting fiasco, they seem to just find ways to, you know, make matters worse with every, every attempt at, at fixing the situation. Yeah. The, um, so you're saying if, if Bradley Cooper, had been willing to do carpool karaoke mm -hmm. right out of the right out of the <laughs> gate. He would have had yes. a better chance. By the way, yeah. one of those anonymous voters said, I've spent I've now spent more time with Rami Malik than I have with my dog, talking about the <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody campaign, which I thought was funny. Um the other thing I want to bring to your attention, David, was this New York Times piece about the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Oh which is yes. one of those great traditions that uh, one hears about being so far away from Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> seems so glamorous. Well, according to the New York Times, it is not glamorous anymore. Um, and sort of has become kind of a lower ranking party in the whole firmament of Hollywood parties and also kind of a place, a nice place to send the advertisers. Um, they published this piece and then Vanity Fair disinvited the New York Times from their Oscar party after the piece. And this is one of those, don't you agree, one of those 
things where the reaction to the piece was so much more damaging than the actual piece. Yes. Because as soon as they disinvited them, the New York Times, our old pal Corey Seeker, go, ah, look, the piece drew so much blood mm-hmm. that these guys won't let us come to the Oscar party. Meanwhile, like, you know, how many people had actually read that piece and had actually had actually changed their minds about the Vanity Fair Oscar party. So that was um, some great PR strategy there. Yeah, I certainly didn't hear about it until after, until the, until the backlash. I get the piece, right? It felt like a very Corey Seacha piece. Like I understand, like, and, and I mean that as a compliment. Like I'm, I'm glad this piece was written. It's an interesting look, although the narrative, I mean, the arc seemed a little bit straightforward, right? I mean, just just like this restaurant used to be the hottest ticket in town, and now it's all tourists, you know, or something. Like it's it's a uh, it seemed like a pretty. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't too shocked by any of the conclusions, but the reaction, yeah, was just. I, I mean, I think we're still getting to the bottom of of you know who made that call, but it was. Uh, um, I mean, just such a weird decision to make, especially in the, in the, uh, I mean, I hate to bring this back around to politics again, but in the Trump era, in the, in the era of banning, banning reporters from the press pool, uh, it, it's just a really bad look. I feel like on the part of Vanity Fair. All right, David, it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. I made a command decision, David, not to do any Bob Kraft jokes. Wow. Okay, it's a bold move, but now, I think I, I think I agree with that. I decision. think we need I think we need to talk about Bob Kraft next week. I think that needs to be a whole segment, and without ha-has, or at least funny Twitter ha-has. Um, so let's start with something else. On Wednesday night, Duke played North Carolina, and Super Prospect Zion Williamson lasted all of thirty-three seconds before one of his Nike shoes exploded, and he suffered a grade one knee sprain. And we wrote about a thousand think pieces about the fate of amateur athletics. Um, a lot of Material from that, Seth Sommerfeld self-reports a tweet that he wished had become overworked, which was for sale, Zion shoes barely worn. <laughs> should, have, should have had more traction, I agree. Oh, that was great. A lot of clips uh, showing LeVar Ball doing his signature walk and saying LeVar walking into the hospital to talk with Zion about getting down with Big Baller brand. Uh, it was also an overworked Twitter joke to say it's got to be the shoes, which is a good excuse. Yes. Uh, to play sound from the vintage Nike commercials with Academy Award winner, Spike Lee. Yeah. Yo, Mars Blackman here with my main man, Michael Jordan. Yo, Mike, what makes you the best player in the universe? Is it the vicious stunts? No, Mars. Is it the haircut? No, Mars. Is it the shoes? No, Mars. Is it the extra long shorts? No, Mars. Is the shoes it, right? Nah. Is it the short socks? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. What about the shoes? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. What a treasure Spike Lee is. Thanks to Chris Almeida and a racquetball for those. This one, David, comes to us from Snarky Ginger. There was a Donald Trump tweet. (laughs) Ha ha. Hold your applause. That's the last week that said, hold the date. We will be having one of the biggest gatherings in the history of Washington, D.C. on July 4th. It will be called A Salute to America and will be held at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, so one of the biggest gatherings in the history of Washington, D.C. on July 4th. It was no word Twitter joke to say, major announcement, Obama is speaking at the Lincoln Memorial on July 4th. <laughs> That's great. Again, thanks to Snarky Ginger. All right, David, from the Oscars, after the shock of Green Book's victory... It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, can we double check the envelope? Some good <laughs> La La Land humor there. And finally, this was my favorite from Alan Corridor and ZZ. Uh, news last Thursday that Reggie Fields Ame 
the president of Nintendo of America had announced his retirement. Okay. <laughs> and he's being replaced <laughs> as president of Nintendo by an actual person named Doug Bowser. <laughs> it was an overworked Twitter joke to say Bowser is the ultimate story of perseverance. After 30 plus years of being denied by Mario, he's finally ascended to the top. If you held down the B button while you ran to make that joke, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke uh, of the week. That's amazing. All right, David. Topic number two is CNN. News last week that CNN hired Sarah Isger Flores as, the, as an editor of its 2020 campaign coverage. Flores, uh, we learned, cut a pretty conventional path through Republican politics. She worked with the Romney and Ted Cruz campaigns. She was nominally a never Trump person while working for Carly Fiorina in 2016. And then she became a spokesman for Jeff Sessions, a job which required her to go to the Oval Office and profess her fealty to Trump, as the Washington Post reported. After joining CNN, one of the staffers told Maxwell Tanney of the Daily Beast, it's extremely demoralizing for everyone here. This is where we open our drawer and pull out the now familiar list of politicos who became journalists. Tim Russert, right? Diane Sawyer, mm-hmm. George Stephanopoulos, and maybe most comparably, in this case, Pete Williams, who is a Pentagon spokesman and Cheney aide and is now a Justice mm-hmm. Department reporter for NBC. couple of issues that came out of this. Number one, is there an amount of time that needs to elapse before someone goes from politico to journalist, right? I don't think anybody thinks no one can do this, right? But there were people who said, it's too soon. You know, this is too direct. What if she just waited a little while? I guess I don't know if gone to a think tank. I don't know what she was going to do in the meantime. Yeah. I did look this up. So in George Stephanopoulos' case, Bill Clinton wins re-election in November of 1996, and a month later, George Stephanopoulos is working for ABC News. So, you know, and it's weird, right? Because if you're hiring somebody from politics, they're at their maximum value the moment they leave politics. Sure. So I don't quite get the argument that there should be some mandatory waiting period. They should have to go play college basketball for a year before they can. uh... (laughs) It's been their mandatory year at Duke. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it, it's a, it, it is an interesting argument. And I think that, you know, it's easy to look at these sort of case by case and certainly other cases where you can you can fairly easily justify it. Right. I mean, George Stephanopoulos was. I mean, I was what in college at the time. I mean, I feel like but but I even remember then being such sort of an oddball situation where he was um way more in demand than it than I could really comprehend like mm-hmm. I didn't really understand the like the allure of him and and even when he was you know when he turned up on Good Morning America or whatever I'm still just sort of like what is George Stephanopoulos contributing to this but you know it's he's had a healthy career and 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 it's sort of hard to argue with success um then you kind of get to the the you know the, the rest of the list I mean there's certainly people that I don't think you mentioned Chris Matthews, but but there you can put That's Matthews and and uh, Russert in this in in the similar in a kind of similar category where no matter what you think about them, I bet either one of them would tell you or would have told you that that they're sort of that they they see a direct line as a sort of continuance of the service, right? And uh, between like it's job a public a like one's B. a public service and the other's a public service, yeah, in a weird way and, of calling. Yes, they're calling people out, like sort of helping narrate from their experience, you know, with the help of their experience on the inside. And then Pete Williams, I think, is another good one just because, I mean, 
you know, talk about the value being at its maximum at the peak. I mean, his connections are only going to get worse over the years if he doesn't, if he's not actively reporting, right? I mean, and he's, and 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 he's, you know, I've never seen him on TV and thought for a second that he was compromised by politics in any sort of way. But there does seem to be a distinction when you hire someone to kind of be the architect of your election coverage who's come directly from inside one of the two campaigns, right? Yeah. I mean, there is a slight, a slight correction here, which is she as an architect. It was originally reported that she was going to run the whole thing or implied that she was going to run the whole thing. Right. She is just a coordinator of coverage within CNN. Anyway, continue. No, that's all I was going to say. Just that there, there does seem to be a distinction there. I, I don't know. Like if she'd been a pundit or a writer or something like that. Sure. And th- those people abound and we don't seem to have, I mean, no one seems to have much of a problem with it. I mean, my mind immediately went to, though, to, with, the, with the internal turmoil that this has caused, my mind went to Kevin Williamson, who we talked about several months ago, you know, was hired at the Atlantic and, and sort of uh, summarily shown the door after a staff revolt. I mean, it doesn't seem like the staff is fully revolting here, but there does seem to be a sort of moral, political, uh, you know, problem with 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 this hire uh, with this hire as seen from the inside. Yeah, I mean, to me, and when when we talk about directing the coverage, um, with in my you know experience for whatever it's worth writing about TV, it's that somebody in those jobs can often just be sitting in meetings, right, and can be kind of a resource for. Who should we get on to talk about Trump? Okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to do our Republican convention coverage in 2020. Um, You know, who can we ask for the internet? Can you call people to make sure we can get these people on our air, right? That Mm -hmm. CNN isn't going to get left out of all the kind of, um, you know, big name conservatives, that kind of thing. You know, how should should we cover, how should we understand or give our reporters sort of guidance on this revelation about Trump or this revelation about, you know, whomever's left in his administration, that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know that it necessarily involves like this person is making decisions about what is getting on CNN's air and what isn't. Um, I just think there's enough wiggle room right in that. I do think there's an interesting question of if you work for the Trump administration, you know, not just another Republican, but you work for the Trump administration that is you know, basically trying to, you know, gain power from repeatedly denouncing the media mm-hmm. as the enemy of the American people. Do you then get to go from that to the media? <laughs> do you do you get to benefit and participate in, however indirectly? She had some. She had a bunch of tweets about like the Clinton News Network and stuff like that, um, <laughs> which is pretty pretty. You know. Pretty run of the mill for for a conservative, you know, politico apparatchik. Yeah. But like, do you get to benefit from that administration and then just go to the media? Is that okay? And I do think that's an interesting question. I'm not it's not an absolute no, but it's a little weird, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it certainly I mean, just from an outsider's perspective, it's hard to wrap one's mind around why that would be acceptable to anybody at CNN, right? I mean, that that I mean, if and if it and if it is, then all of the righteous complaints that have you know filled the the cable news airwaves uh, for the entirety of the Trump pre- presidency, extolling the virtues of the of the you know fine art of journalism, just sort of seem like a bunch of hot air, right? I mean, if it if it's so easily dismissed, yeah. To me, the through line here when people talk about 
do you let the, you know, how, how and when should these people get into journalism is it sort of comes down to, do you want to be a journalist, right? Do you want to be an ideological water carrier who uh. just, who gets, you know, thrown out of politics or bounced out of your old job and this is your next job? Or do you actually want to be a journalist? When you pick, when you pick some of these people like George Stephanopoulos and Pete Williams and we could name a whole bunch of others, right? Mm-hmm. These are people who just kind of committed to the bit at some point. Sure. <laughs> right? uh, there's a good tweet from um, Tom Skoka this week. It says, the reason not to have a party operative as a political analyst on your news program is that they're not here there to analyze anything. They're there to sell something. It's like hiring mm-hmm. a marketing staffer from Keebler to come on and talk about cookies. And I agree with that. There's a small number. And most people – who get these jobs just don't care enough about journalism, right? They see this as a gig sure. and then they'll go be work on K Street or do whatever they want to do. But there's a small group of these people who actually do want to be journalists. And I feel you can tell pretty quick, right? Um, like who's in this, you know, because it's not like these jobs aren't glamorous <laughs> for the most part. Even the TV job is probably not going to be all that glamorous. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to do this, that will you know, you can probably reinvent yourself as a journalist in almost every case. If you don't and you just want to be, you know, continue to be Jeff Sessions' spokeswoman within a cable news network, then that's, you know, obviously just not going to work. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. We're talking about people being at the, at the their highest earning potential, highest level of marketability. If you want to, if you want that job, go get that job and, and, and prove that you are committed to doing it. I mean, this is your, you, you have an opportunity, you, can, you know, walk forward into it it's also one of these things where we should probably just talk about why you want to hire people like this is because i think you want a seat at the table of trump world right yes even if cnn is going to be kind of basically anti-trump in its orientation you want somebody who can pick up the phone and get a call return and Mm -hmm. you know again like you have moments where you want those people on your air even if it's just to have jake tapper yell at kellyanne conway for 20 minutes like that is valuable um, by the way, we saw the also saw the comedy version of this this week, which is Sean Spicer joining Extra <laughs> as a correspondent. Yes. He tells the Hollywood reporter, this is the personal, not the politics, not the policy. The idea is to give people a different angle on some of the people they see on cable news channels every day. So even Extra wants a seat at the table. <laughs> Extra does not want to be left out. Oh, man. And I believe Spicy's first piece was a um, a piece about, like, it was an exclusive with Mike Pompeo at home. Am I remembering <laughs> that correctly? Like, what was, had all the had all the journalists been saying, you know, I can, I can get Pompeo at the office or at a press conference oh, setting, man. but I have never seen his house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When we do the, the Trump administration postmortem and just break it down by what cable news shows they're uh, they're they're affiliated with, it's going to be it's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah. Sean Spicer is the conservative Robin Leach. Just that just makes my day. I want to and I'm, I'm ready to consume anything he uh, comes up with. All right, David, topic number three. Let's do this one quickly. Zion Williamson mentioned a minute ago, future number one pick in the NBA draft. Hurts his knee 33 oh, yeah. seconds to do a much hyped game between Duke and North Carolina. Here's my take on this. I am I am with the anti-amateurism brigade, but I sort of feel we've reached a stalemate on this <laughs> in the sense that nothing is changing in the media, in the near term. And so that, you know, you have something like this come along. He hurts himself. It's obviously terrible. The news is on the front page of the New York Times. I got a press release from the Washington Post that Sally Jenkins had written a column about this. Is this is mm-hmm. this in the press release zone that this is no that the amateurism system is no longer going to work? Mm hmm. And 
I just feel like I don't feel anybody's doing anything wrong, but I feel it's one of those weird journalistic situations where morally, you know, a let's call it a vast majority of sports writers have have pointed out a moral wrong that is taking place, but no action is happening to right the moral wrong. Mm -hmm. So we are all looking for examples to then repost essentially or rewrite the columns we've now been writing for a couple of years. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, I I think that it, it's it's worth noticing that there has been some evolution on the issue, right? I mean, we're not that far away from you know sports writers and sports casters being just totally caught off guard and you know engaging in various forms of pro clutching when when uh, football players decided to sit out bowl games. Yep. You know, I mean, just one fully optional game. And the night after this happened, um, I. Or the morning after this happened, sorry, I, I I popped on ESPN in the morning expecting just to see wall to wall, you know, second uh, microsecond breakdowns of the shoes exploding off of Zion's feet, and uh, and instead just saw that every single show uh, was cons- talking. I mean, the the argument shows I first take and and as well, but as well as the more laid back get up environs were just consumed with discussing whether or not Zion should ever play for Duke again, mm-hmm. um, which was I thought both. Uh, really interesting, like I said, in terms of the sort of evolution of that portion of the argument, but also a little bit just bewildering because, like, you know, to react to a football player affirmatively deciding to sit out a game is one thing, but to sort of, like, speculate completely baselessly about whether or not a player should or will uh, preemptively end his college career halfway through just seems like... uh, I don't know. It, 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 I'm not. I, it, it seemed like. I mean, like, like so much else. Just sort of like arguing for sport. You know. I mean, I don't. I don't really know. I don't. And I don't think that. I mean, I think like going to what you said about the stalemate. I'm not sure there was much disagreement. I think that a lot of people. You know, a lot of people would talk in one direction really strongly, and then come back and just be. You know, it's like well, he should just do his best for his family. He should do his best. You know, he's got. He's got to stop. You know, and then. Yep. Now the stalemate is on, between sports writers and the NCAA. I think. Yeah. Exactly. Not between. You know, Max and, Kellerman and Stephen A. And to talk about it, you know, whether or not things are changing. I mean, NBA, the the NBA did use this opportunity. It seems, you know, deliberately to kind of to trot out their their statement that they're going to try to eliminate the the age limit, you yep. know, in the next collective bargaining agreement. Right. So, and, and that is and that is interesting, and that is a kind of progress. It's something. It is. It is. And I think. I mean, it's. You know, I think that it's Zion specifically is an interesting case, but then that the broader conversation immediately goes to you know the broader conversation of paying players which you know is just the most kind of depressing hopeless or you know <laughs> online argument that we see these days not just online um yeah i mean it, i think you're right i think i don't i don't know that anybody's convincing anyone of anything especially because i mean and i don't i don't mean to i don't mean to to read ill will into you know into any of this but like you know the the arguments the pro NCAA arguments never really fully seem to be arguing in good faith, right? So I, it's it's sort of hard to to imagine many people being swayed from their starting position. All right, let's do the notebook dump, David. All Tired right, of talking about amateurism. Uh, I have to start with the clowning of Tucker Carlson. Cute story this week. Yes, as Justin Charity explains in his Ringer piece, which you should read. Mm-hmm. Dutch historian Rutger Bregman was invited on Carlson's Fox News show in January. 
Carlson wanted to do this kind of like inside straight where he would try to make common cause with Bregman about tax avoidance. That seemed to be his strategy. Yes. And Bregman was like, nah, we're talking about higher taxes for millionaires. This was my favorite part of the interview by far. It's true, right? It's true, right? That all the all the anchors, all the anchors on Fox, <laughs> they're all millionaires. How is this possible? Well, it's very easy. You're just not talking about certain things. It doesn't play where you are. <laughs> well, have you heard of the internet? <laughs> I can watch things whatever I want, you know? <laughs> That's my, fa- this is my favorite part because Tucker Carlson did not understand how somebody <laughs> in another country was watching American television. <laughs> Fox News wow. was in Australia when I was there last year. Like, <laughs> like live, <laughs> not on the internet. <laughs> it was just on. Yeah, seems like seems like somebody in another country could really get the gist, you know, pretty quickly. (laughs) Speaking of Fox News, David, I have another Brit Hume tweet of the week. I hope we can make this a regular segment, please. Uh, On Thursday, Hume uh, opened his copy of the Washington Post, his actual paper copy of the Post. And David, Brit Hume was not happy. He tweets uh, readers of the print edition of the Washington Post this morning found not a word about the arrest last night of Justice Smollett. Because democracy dies in darkness. Uh, as multiple people would go on to point out, Jesse Smollett was actually surrendered to police early uh, the next morning, which is why he was not in the paper that had closed the night before. So <laughs> great stuff from the Waldorf and Stadler of media critics. What would we do without <laughs> Brit Hume's media criticism? I have no idea. Amazing. Man. He's, he's a national treasure. A couple of 2020 notes for you. Um, Eric Erickson <laughs> was never Trump, and now he has endorsed Trump. For 2020. <laughs> so he was not never Trump. This is the, the the great time. We're talking about like, you know, people in the Trump administration looking for other jobs. This is when every talking head, especially on the especially in the incumbent party, has to reevaluate their career pers- projections here because, uh, you know, you got to see you, you get you got to have a game plan for the next four. Right. You can sit out the first two years of the administration, but you're really going to sit out 2020 and kind of implicitly endorse whoever the Democrats do, Kamala Harris. No, right? <laughs> tough position not. to be in. That's a tough position. Speaking of tough positions, former Ohio governor and Trump antagonist John Kasich, who was thinking about running an insurgent campaign against Trump uh, in two years, said of his run for the Republican nomination back in 2016, quote, I won my lane. So he, you know, he was that kind of <laughs> lovable centrist non-Trump. He didn't win. He didn't win anything, but he won his lane. Wow. Well, I guess I guess he can I guess he can live the rest of his life happy with that fact. Yeah. And Benji Sarlin of NBC said um, it's in the rafters at Quicken Loans Arena right now. (laughs) He won his lane. And finally, David, we did this last week and I want to I want to let you do it again. Would you like to guess the celebrity profile headline? Oh, God. Okay, go ahead. Okay, last week. Uh, for listeners who might have missed last week's exciting episode, David failed to guess correctly that a soul-bearing interview with Laura Dern and Vanity Fair was titled Big Little Truce. Big Little Truce. So now David's going to get a chance to redeem himself. <laughs> guess the celebrity profile headline. All right, David, back with Vanity Fair, okay? Yes. A piece, a reported piece about mm-hmm. Trump confidant Hope Hicks's second oh. career. Oh, a piece about Trump confidant Hope Hicks's second career. 
Oh my gosh. I feel like I, I, I read parts of this piece. I don't even know if I remember the headline. Okay. This is, I, I have the only thing that comes to mind, uh, the only pun that comes to mind actually kind of works. So I'm going to go with hope floats. Oh, very close. It was hope and change, but I think you might've actually written a, a superior celebrity profile headline. I thought hope wow. and glory, right? There's also, there's a pun on a place called hope. Um, oh, yeah. You know, a place called hope. How Trump's former communications director is facing the, you know, po- her post White House future, right? <laughs> you could massage that into a into a good celebrity profile headline. Yeah, we should really we we when when we're evaluating the future career prospects of these former Trump and it, basically anybody that's coming out of any field, but particularly politics, we should really pay more attention to the punnability of their names because that's gonna, I think, make a lot of difference in pitch meetings. Yeah, it's like well, when you have the when your name is Hope, right? You have a lot of raw materials. For sure. By the way, also the one other one we mentioned last week, after she won the Oscar last night, how many times will we see it's good to be Regina King? Uh-huh. <laughs> now a celebrity profile headline from now into infinity. Everybody enjoy it. All right. That's the press box. Producer Jim Cunningham, researcher Chris Almeida, co-host extraordinaire David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. See you next week with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. I'll see you later, Brian. of the American people. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be an ideological water carrier? Yeah. It's an interesting look. But it's a little weird, is it not? Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right. I do think there's an interesting question of, do you then get to go from that to carpool karaoke? Wow. Okay. Bold move. But I think I, I, think I agree with that decision. You vinegary old voter, you. Ah, I'm amazed <laughs> I won my lane. Yes. We are the Baldorf and Stadler of media critics. <laughs> it's like a horror movie in there. It's like Jordan, a Jordan Peele movie. <laughs>